Well, good morning, everybody. Just hearing these uh, God sightings, hearing Pastor Ralph um, reminded as a staff, when we, when we pray for you guys on Tuesdays, um, Pastor Ralph, myself, Santia, Jeanette, frequently something that comes up is just how much we love you guys. We, we love this church so much, and you guys are like family, and, and we just, I just praise God that we could be here right now and just uh, as, as a family, praying, singing to God, declaring what He's done in our lives, and now there's an opportunity to open His Word together. Just praise God for that, and praise God for you guys. Would you pray with me as we open up here? Lord God, if you have taken your hand out of our lives, we would not have woken up this morning. And yet, Lord, it's that common grace you sustain us with every breath. Thank you for that. And Lord, we know that we do not live on this earth without a purpose, but with a purpose. And our chief end is to give you glory, O God, and to enjoy you. And Lord, I come before you right now, and I just hunger to see you work and speak through me right now, Lord, through my weaknesses. And Lord, did you engage our hearts through our weaknesses, that Christ might be exalted in our midst. Oh God, we give you glory, and I just lean upon your Holy Spirit to lead me, to speak through me. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week... I learned of a report that's taking place in Northern California, a really a wild thing, in fact. There's a, there's a river there in Northern California where a gray whale had wandered off course out of the Pacific Ocean into a river. And it's a 40-foot gray whale, whale that's swimming through this tiny river. And people throughout Northern California are driving to this place just to get a glimpse of this whale. And you see footage, it's pretty remarkable, this huge thing in this small, small channel. And it's been there for over a month. They said in this time, the whale's lost a lot of weight because there isn't enough food to sustain the whale. And its, it's skin is going to begin to crumble a little because it needs the salt water. And it can't survive as well in the fresh water. And one thing they said, if it continues in there, it will, it will indeed starve to death. So scientists have tried to force the whale out of the river and in, back into its environment They've used the soundings from like killer whales trying to scare it and to no avail. The, the whale is just there swimming around in that, in that river. And as I got thinking about that, I'm realizing this, this gray whale in its proper habitat is safe and strong and grows. But when this whale veered off course, it's now living in danger. It doesn't have the food, the nourishment to sustain it in that place where it is at. And in fact, if the whale continues on in this location, it will die. And I think about that lesson for our own lives. We call ourselves children of God here today. You have a place where God wants you to live. You have a direction in which He has called you to. But when things in our world distract us and veer us off course, we begin to deteriorate spiritually. We begin to lose our focus. And this way of, of waywardness, that is driven by sin, will lead to our death eventually. And God is calling us back. And will we be those who turn around and say, God, I want to serve you and you alone. And I think of our story this morning, 
The story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah is a man of great courage. He was a man who was kind of no-nonsense. Although all the things were pointing him into a different direction from where God wanted him, he stood firm. No matter what the pressures that were on him, and they were great. He's an example for you and I. An example of one who stands firm in our faith when everything in our culture is telling us to do otherwise. And our call today is to be like Elijah, to be Elijah's in our generation. So my prayer is as we open God's word, we will see this man, see his context and say, God, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. And I don't want to be those who are on the fence limping around from one opinion to the next. Before we get in our story here in 1 Kings chapter 18, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to that. But I want to kind of just share with you some key characters in this story, because there are several. As I already mentioned, there is Elijah. He's a godly man, a prophet of God. His name, Elijah, means Elohim is Yahweh. That is, the Lord is my God. The Lord is God. His name declares what his life would declare. And he would be a no-compromise kind of guy. Here in this this story in 1 Kings 18, he's confronted though, or he confronts King Ahab. King Ahab's a wicked king, a coward-like kind of king. And we see in 1 Kings chapter 16, a few chapters behind ours, if you would turn there, we see what this king was like. 1 Kings 16, I begin in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had not been a light thing for him, or as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the king of the land where Elijah was prophesying. This is the king of the land where Elijah lived. A wicked king who did evil in the sight of God. We're told that he married a woman named Jezebel. And that name may be familiar to you. She was from Sidonia, from Sidon. And she was a worshiper of Baal. She was a wicked woman, and a woman who was committed to her idolatry. And this is the woman that Ahab took as his wife. And when he brought her into his home in Israel, he brought her gods with her. And he began to set up altars for Baal, this false god, and Asherah poles, and put away Yahweh, the God of Israel. So we see King Ahab and Jezebel's keep characters. And we, we've already seen several times the name of Baal mentioned, or Baal. Baal was a, a god in this region of the land. In some regions, he was known as the storm god. So when they needed it to rain, <coughs> they call out to Baal. In, in uh, Jezebel's land, he was the god of lightning who controlled the weather. This is the Baal that, that they worshipped which is extremely crucial because what's about to take place. You see, in 1 Kings 17, we find that Elijah 
had a message for Ahab. He said, Ahab, it's not going to rain in this land until I tell it to rain again. It was a message that God had given him. And what a slap in the face of Baal, the god of the storms, that it would not rain until Elijah was told that it would rain by his god. And Elijah knew his life would be in danger, and God sent him away and cared for him for three years. Three years it didn't rain. There was a great famine in the land. And no doubt Ahab despised Elijah. We find that he sent messengers throughout the kingdom into other lands looking for Elijah in order to kill him. And when a nation said, no, Elijah's not in my land, he would make that nation swear that that was true. And if it was false, that, uh, then Ahab would go and try to kill those in that land. He had a bone to pick with Elijah because there was a great famine in the land of Israel. And for three years, God protected Elijah as he was in hiding until one day God said it was time to come out. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine, in the, in, uh, the, now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And here's a parenthetical phrase. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Here we get a sense of Jezebel again, her hatred for God, her hatred for Yahweh, the God of Israel, that she tried to kill off all of his prophets. But Obadiah on the sneak protected a hundred of them and took care of them. Ahab, not knowing this, enlisted Obadiah to help him find some, some grass so they can feed the cattle trying to spare the land as best as possible. And in verse 7, we see that Obadiah went on his way looking for somewhere where they could find grass. And he's confronted. It says, Behold, Elijah met him. The same Elijah who said it wouldn't rain until I said so. The same Elijah who's been hidden for three years. The same Elijah that Ahab wants dead. And here Obadiah, the man who feared God, looked this man of God in the face. And Obadiah, it says there in verse 7, recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? Verse 8. And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, referring to Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? You might be thinking, like, Did I miss something here? Elijah tells Obadiah, look, go tell Ahab that I'm here. And Obadiah's like, why do you hate me for? Why, why are you sending me to my death? What we find out there later in the text is that Obadiah is saying, look, when my Lord, when Ahab was looking for you and people said you weren't around, he said, swear to me that he's not there and if he is, I will find you and kill you. And Obadiah says, you know what? If I go to Ahab, say I found you, the Lord's going to probably take you up and, and send you to another place. And then I'm going to bring you back and, and, you, and you're not going to be here and he's going to kill me. Because I know how God works with you, Elijah. He just sends you wherever. And, and, and I don't know what to do about that. And you're, you're sending me to my death sentence. This, this is Obadiah's concern. He doesn't know what to do now. He says, why do you hate me? And then he goes on in verse 13. 
trying to plead his case. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. Please don't let me do this. Don't make me do this, Elijah. But Elijah knew what was going on and Obadiah had no clue. See, God was about to do something in Israel. And Elijah puts his spirit to rest. He says in verse 15, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him, to Ahab, today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So the stage is set here. Ahab, who's been looking to kill Elijah for over three years, has an opportunity to look him in the eye. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of Yahweh, of the Lord, and followed the Baals. Now therefore send the and gather all Israel to meet at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab's first response is, there you are, you troubler of Israel. You're the big troublemaker. You're the reason there's a famine in the land. Finally, you coward, you decide to show up. But you know, Elijah's got his gloves on. He says, no, no, you're the troubler of Israel. Now you might think the word troubler is kind of odd, saying you're the troubler of Israel. But what's interesting, we see in, the, in, in second chron- or first Chronicles that this word troubler is used of Achan, a man in the book of Joshua chapter 7. See, in the story of Joshua 7, the, the, the nation of Israel is entering into the promised land. They had just taken over Jericho. You remember the walls came tumbling down? And they're about to take over a city called Ai, A-I. And it was a smaller city, a weaker one. And Israel thought, we're going to conquer this easily. But lo and behold, there was a man named Achan who stole from, from Jericho. And when Israel went out to, to war, Achan had this idol. And God did not give Israel victory because of Achan's sin. And Achan was a troubler of Israel. This one man's sin brought the whole nation to defeat in a battle. So when Ahab calls Elijah a troubler, he's saying, you're one man and you brought all this trouble upon us like Achan did. Yet Elijah turns the table and says, no, you have done so because you have forsaken God. You've went to serve Baal. You're the real troubler here. There's problems in this nation because you are the idolater, King Ahab. And Elijah proposes a scenario Go gather the prophets of Baal and meet me on Mount Carmel near the Mediterranean Sea. And for some reason, Ahab obliges to this challenge. And we see in verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So he had the people of Israel and then also the prophets of Baal that are there on this mountain. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and he told them this. How long... Will you go limping between two different opinions? 
if the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah's courage is so, it's something to be admired. Not only does it confront the king, but now he's confronting the nation with 450 prophets of Baal around him. And if you remember, Jezebel had killed off the other prophets, and the other 100 were in hiding at this time. Elijah is there, his lonesome, with hundreds, maybe even thousands of people surrounding him, pressuring him. And here he is against the flow, and he's not about to buckle. He looks them in the eye and he gives them that question. How long are you going to continue doing this? Limping about between two different opinions. This word opinions is used in Psalm 119 verses 113. And it says there, it calls it double-minded. And that's what the people of Israel were. They wanted some of Yahweh and some of Baal. Thinking that they were going to get the best of both worlds. And they're limping back and forth. That word limping is really odd. Literally means to pass over. So they're passing over from one side to the other. You think of being on the fence? Well, they're jumping it back and forth. But what's real striking is in verse 26, this word's used again. And what we find is that word limping is the same word used when the worshipers of Baal limp about in their dances, worshiping Baal. And Elijah with a play on words saying, you're limping around worshiping the wrong God here. How long are you going to do that for? I don't believe this is a rhetorical question, but there was no response. They had no answer for him. They had nothing to say. So Elijah proceeds. All right, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. They're deep. There's a lot of them. And Elijah's there by himself. You might resonate to that. When everything feels against you, how will you stand? How did Elijah stand? He sets his proposal in verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put, it, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And here's the challenge. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And they thought, that's well spoken. Baal's the God of lightning after all. You want to call fire from the sky on the sacrifice? We've got the upper hand here. That's our God's specialty. So like an eager beaver, they said, let's do this. They were excited about the challenge. Plus, we're we're 450 here. We surely will get our God to respond to consume this sacrifice. That was their mindset. So Elijah, with his God-given confidence, says, well, you go first. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. From morning until noon. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Just as Israel had limped about from one opinion to the other. 
And at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, Cry loud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I got thinking about this, like, is this cool? Like, he's totally mocking their God. He's putting them to shame. And I got thinking, what is, what is Elijah saying here about Baal? He says, cry out louder. He is God. You can hear sarcasm there. He, he's God, isn't he? And by Elijah's questioning, Elijah's saying, he's not a God. He's not divine. He can't answer your prayers. He's taking a shot at their God because he knows who his God is. He goes on saying, maybe he's musing. He's lost in thought. Well, if he's God, what's he thinking about? What's he considering? What's he contemplating? See, my God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He doesn't get lost in thought and can't be interrupted. My God knows all. Baal clearly does not. Well, perhaps he's relieving himself. He's in the John. I mean, serious, Elijah? Where'd that come from? But Elijah's showing, your, your God's more human than divine, if he's anything at all. Maybe he's on a journey. He's, he's in Egypt right now. Clearly he's not omnipresent then, is he? He's not everywhere as Elijah's God was. Baal, you're, Baal's, maybe he's gone right now. Or maybe, last but not least, maybe he's asleep. He's taking a nap. He's got tired. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's taking a rest, and you need to wake him up. Elijah's mockery gets at the heart of the matter. What he's saying is, Baal's not a god. He's not a god. He's an idol. He's an idol of your imaginations that you've crafted images for. He's not my god. He's not like my God. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. It's not how Satan works to destroy people. And here these idol worshipers are cutting themselves, self-mutilating, thinking that their God's going to be pleased with that. Oh, how Satan wants to destroy people. And here we see evidence of it. In verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation, which is at twilight. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No one paid attention. Notice how many times there is no answer in this passage. When Elijah says, how long are you going to do this for? What does it say in verse 21? No one answered. Verse 26, they say, Oh, Baal, answer us. But then it says, And no one answered. There in verse 29, they did this until twilight, but there was no voice. No one answered. There's no answer. Their prayers hit a ceiling because there was no God of theirs beyond it. Then Elijah says, All right, my turn. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. 
And the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Why did Elijah choose Mount Carmel? There was an altar of the Lord there that had been destroyed. And he's going to rebuild it to make a statement here. He rebuilt the altar that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. And here we see another, another illustration. Although Israel had been divided at this point, God sees it as one in many ways still. There are 12 tribes. And Elijah built an altar. And it says, Israel should be your name. Verse, 20, uh, verse 32. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill, uh, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, I'm not a camper. I'm, I never did Boy Scouts. I know some of you guys know how to make fires, but I'm pretty sure you don't put water on the wood before you light a fire. Correct me if I'm wrong. Elijah's about to show off his God here. Not for Elijah's credit, but that his God would receive the glory. So pour these jars. But then 34, do it a second time. And then do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah is setting the stage to see his God do a work amongst the prophets of Baal. And at the time of offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, he's still their covenant God. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me. Huh? Answer. Answer me. He asks Yahweh, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then picture the scene. It's late. It's dark. It's been going on all day. Then the fire of the Lord, of Yahweh, fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I love that picture. I mean, you've had a meal that you've loved. You know, maybe a, a, a pasta dish where that sauce is out of this world. You eat all the pasta and you see the sauce there. You're thinking, I'm going to do this right now. And you bury your face in that bowl and you lick it up because it's a delight to you. And here Yahweh licks up every drop of water because this was a pleasing sacrifice to him. And here he had an opportunity to show off. He is the God who is all-knowing. He is the God who is all-powerful. He is God. He hears the cries of his people and he answers their prayers. And Elijah had an opportunity because of his courage to see his God magnified in the midst of these idol worshipers. And when all the people saw it, verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What I find so wonderful about that statement is this. Did I, do you remember what Elijah's name means? It means the Lord is God. And here, the man with the name Eliyahu, Elijah, standing courageous for his God, the people declared the very same thing. The Lord, He is God. 
Well, the prophets of Baal didn't have a happy fate. They would be taken on to the river Kishon and slaughtered there for their wicked and evilness. And so in such way, God was glorified because of the courage of Elijah. And when I think about Elijah, I think about an example that we are all to follow. We find ourselves at times faced with such pressures. He had the king of his nation against him, trying to kill him. He had over 450 prophets of Baal there, intimidating him, plus all of Israel who was limping back and forth. And there are times we stand in the face of pressure. We stand in the face of pressure. And God is calling you to stand courageously like Elijah did because he will use you to magnify himself so that people could say the Lord, he is God because of your testimony. What I find so wonderful is Elijah's prayer. You see, Elijah prays in verse 36. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. His concern is that his God would be recognized. He's concerned about the reputation of the Lord. He's concerned for his fame and God's, for God's fame and God's glory. And he appeals to him as, as our covenant God. By Elijah's prayer, he's reminding his, the God, God's people that this is the same God who has kept his covenant with you from the time of Abraham when he told him to leave his land and enter here and then offered him a promise through his seed and Isaac would come and then to Jacob and then to the twelve tribes. This is the covenant God Oh, Israel, that you have forsaken. And the opportunity God gives us often is to declare Him. And so often we must remember as well that our God is a covenant God who will not leave us. We can trust Him and trust His promises. But at the same time, being the covenant God that He is, He is a God who is exclusive. You cannot serve two gods and serve Yahweh. You cannot serve the God of the Bible and another God. He wants all of your attention. And Elijah knew that. And that's what he gave his God. And will you give that to your God? What are the things in your life that are taking your attention from the Lord? What are the things that divide your heart? Our God does not play second fiddle to any. There is no, there is no equal to Him. And we see that our God is unlike any other. The second thing Elijah says, not only that the God would receive, that people would see that he is God, but that he would also, he says that, that they would see that I am your servant, and that I have done this from your word. God told Elijah to do what he did, and Elijah responded in obedience. And there's a message here for us about obeying our God, that people would know that we are servants of our God. Like I said, there's so many pressures that come against us. And I think of the spot uh, two weeks ago in our youth uh, had to focus on peer pressure. And you young people, when you're in school, you're going to face pressures. You're going to face pressure. But will you obey your God or obey the crowd? So often we're like water going down a drain, just following along. And we need it to be plugged up so we can serve our God and serve Him alone. 
And like Elijah, as we walk in obedience, we need to expose the errors of our culture. We need to expose how this idea of spirituality, this new age spirituality, does not deliver from sin. We need to expose that among one another and remind each other and into the people in the world around us. We can't be those who bow under a tolerant mindset. See, Baal, Baal wasn't demanding soul worship. He just was demanding that he be worshipped in their eyes. And we cannot let that, that, that kind of pressures come upon us where, where we allow things to, to vie for our attention as Christians and we say, no, we just need to be tolerant. No. We need to obey our Lord first and foremost. Just this past week, about 12 of us were at a conference at Moody Bible Institute. And it was a conference called the Legacy Conference. And I, I was so encouraged because it's a conference filled with with urbanites, people from cities, from across the country and across the world, actually, who come together and have this like-minded passion for the urban context. And what I saw among so many of them was this no-compromise mentality that, that Elijah has. We know who our God is, many of them would say, and we're, we're going to serve Him. We're going to keep our culture, keep our style, keep our passion for the urban setting but we're not going to compromise our love for the Lord. And that's what God wants us to be like. At the conference, I taught a workshop on the Protestant Reformation. And we talked about Martin Luther. How he had the pressures of the, of the Catholic Church of his day. Who wanted him dead because he was showing the errors of that church. And how this man, with great courage, looked the leaders of his day in the eye. And says, unless I'm persuaded from Scripture that my teachings are wrong, I cannot and I will not recant. God, help me. That's the kind of courage God's calling us to be. Will you be an Elijah in our day? Will you be Elijah to stand firm on God and say, He is my God. I will not compromise Him. Because that's our God who was there, here, and will always be. The last thing Elijah prays in his prayer, it's the third thing. He says this, Answer me, O Lord, in verse 37. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God, answer me so that these people know you are calling them to repentance. You are calling them to repentance. And that's God's call for our lives, is that walk of repentance. That we would be those who see our sin and, and turn from it. I, I was surprised this week when I saw a story of a coyote in Seattle. You may have saw this. He was a wild coyote. And while he was out in the wild, he came across a mayonnaise jar. And he put his head in it to begin to lick all the mayonnaise up. And guess what? The mayonnaise jar got stuck on his head. And there were various coyote sightings for over a week, for almost a week, of a coyote walking around with a jar of mayonnaise around his head. Until somebody finally saw him and removed that jar and let the coyote run away. And I started thinking, boy, how often we, we let sin do that to us. We stick our heads into it and we walk around with our vision out of tune and we can't see straight. And we need, to be, we need it to be removed and walk in repentance. And that's what Elijah was calling God's people to, to walk in repentance, turn away from Baal, and know that he alone, that God alone, that Yahweh alone is God.
My prayer is that God would raise up Elijah's among us. That we would be Elijah's at our schools. That when we get back to school in, in September, that, that you would be like Elijah. Be like Elijah to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to one another here. And being courageous for our God. Well, I want to close with these thoughts. Because we've been focusing, focusing not, just, not just on the people of faith, and they, they are wonderful examples, but upon the God in whom they have their faith. How, how do we see God at work in this story? Well, where does Elijah's courage come from? God gives him the courage based on who he knew his God to be. The God in this story calls his people to pure worship of him. Our God does not sleep. He does not go on journeys. He is not reluctant to hear and answer our prayers. Our God is eager to respond to those of us who would walk in obedience to Him. And that's our God. You know, there's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah would come back. Malachi 4, 5 says, There will be in Elijah the last days of the Lord. And we see in Matthew 17 that Elijah did come back a second time. But it wasn't literal, but figurative. See, Jesus says, John the Baptist was Elijah, calling God's people to repentance, preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come, the one who would ultimately deliver God's people from sin. And that's the God that we serve, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we go forth today, may we be those who put our trust in Him, who love Him with all our might, who are concerned that His glory would be shining, concerned for His reputation, and that we would be servants of God who respond to His Word so that He would receive all the glory. Brothers and sisters, that's our God. He was. He was louder. He was. He is. And He will. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for Elijah and his example to us. God, I know some, so many times we've, we've stood in the face of great pressure. And Lord, to our shame, we've buckled sometimes. And God, we repent of our sin. We ask your forgiveness, God. And Lord, our prayer is that we would be like Elijah, bold in our culture, when all those are doing others, doing other things, but pleasing you, that we would stand firm and live for you, O oh God. Give us the courage, O oh God. Give us the focus. Give us the determination to honor you with our lives. May we not be those on the fence, living between, between one opinion and another, but may today be our decision time our moment of decision, and say, we will serve you, O Lord. We will serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.